0: Uh, For really just stirring our hearts through Tony, your gifting, your leadership. Um, So let's welcome Tony here. Thank you for leading us, man. Sure. All right. All right. Well, good evening. I've never needed a microphone in my life, so this is really, really weird. My mother has told me for years that I'm loud and I talk too fast and too much. (laughs) My wife has not disputed that either. (laughs) so uh but, uh but at any rate, it is um, it's such a privilege to be here with you um, this evening. I, I have to say, I, I appreciate you um, joining me on this journey, and um, I, I say it's a journey because so much of um, so much are you going to move that way over i am just kidding i'm just, I'm just, just putting you on the spot. no you brother, I'm just messing with you <laughs> You come up here, you get messed with. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but at any rate, I say on the journey with me, because I have to tell you, this is, um, this is as much for me as it is for you. Um, I have, um, you know, as the Lord has been preparing me um, to come tonight and, and in, in the subsequent weeks, I just feel like he's um, been convicting me and, um, and showing me places where, um, as a leader, um, both in my home as well as outside of my home, there are certainly places where I need to do more, I need to do better, I need to be more deliberate and more intentional. And so um, I hope that the things that he has, that he has revealed to me that I'm going to attempt to share with you starting tonight, um, I hope that they will be a, they will prove to be a blessing to you. Um, true confession, I am not a some well-educated biblical scholar with a mastery of Greek and Latin, and I think those are the two languages. See what I'm saying? So... <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> so, so not only that, I would tell you that a lot of what we're going to talk about, I struggle with every single day. Um, I, I would say to you, I'm just um, um, one beggar. I'm wanting to share a little bit with a few other beggars. And um, that, that's really all this is. And I, um, I am I'm humbled that the Lord, after, you know, so much has happened in my life, I'm, I'm humbled that he would um, even allow me to be here to, to talk about him with you. Um, but I tell you, even over the course of the last week or so, as Particularly over the last four weeks, um, I have uh, I was sharing with Darren and, and also with my wife the the fact that it's just I felt just really under attack um, and um, a lot of things not going well. A lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about, I've got multiple examples of me messing those things up over the last several weeks, and um, I would tell you that Satan is alive and well. Um, without a doubt. I was reminded of the verse from Pete, from First uh, Peter, um, be, sober, be sober-minded, be sober be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And um, I have certainly felt like I've experienced his presence, um, without a doubt. Um, nevertheless, I also know that John has reminded me that greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. And um, I've also experienced that. Um, and so that has been the, the beauty of this journey. So I, I, again, I hope that As we go through these things together, um, that it will prove to be a blessing, a blessing to you also. So if you could join me in prayer. Our gracious heavenly father, we just come into your presence um, with first of all, with just thanksgiving in our hearts um, because you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. You've chosen to call us out of great darkness into your marvelous light. Um, You've given us an affection and a love for you and a desire to serve you. And we pray, Father, that you would be with us this evening, um, that you would guide our discussion, that you'd guide our time together, um, that you would be glorified, that you would be magnified, that your name would be high and lifted up. Um, Please give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Um, May you be seen and I not be seen. I'm in Jesus' holy name. We pray. Amen. Something happened to my water. Brother, move my water. (laughs) Man. Hmm? Who's messing with who now? Right. right. We need to keep a tally, you know, just so you know, I play for life. <laughs> even, even When you start crying, stop. I'll be like, no, I'm not stopping. You should to move my water. <laughs> so. Anyway, so what is the leadership imperative and and really what is it that we're going to be focusing on? I I would say that the leadership imperative is really based on this premise. And Darren says some of this, but basically that God calls, equips, and perfects each Christian to lead in the context in which he has called him or her. That every single one of us has been called to lead. Um, You can't be the light of the world and not be leading. You can't be the salt of the earth. And not be leading. Um, so it's not a it's not about some formal leadership, but it is about the fact that God has in fact called each of us to a position of leadership. This call out of darkness into His light. This fact that He has now called us light. Jesus Himself said, "What I am the light of the world." And then he says, you are the light of the world. Um, That says to me that um, and should say to each of us that we've been that we have, in fact, been called to lead. Um, If you will turn briefly, I hope you have your your Bibles with you um, to 78. um, um, Excuse me. Psalm 78. We're going to look at verses 70 and 72. To give you just a sense of what I mean in terms of what we're going to be focusing on over the course of the next several weeks. So that's Psalm 78, um, beginning at verse 70. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to, the shepherd, to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. If I, before I talk about the verse, I want to focus on, I just think it's so, so important here that only God could take a shepherd boy and turn him into a king. Right. I mean, only God could take the the, someone who was a shepherd. Only God could take me and put me in front of you today. I mean, you don't know the half of my life, but I will tell you only a God could transform me enough to be able to stand here and talk with you today about who he is. But only God could take a shepherd boy and put him on and put him on the throne. And we're going to spend some time talking about David next week and the week after next. Um, But the verse I wanted to zero in on is, is verse 72. It says, with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. You know, when we think about leadership, there's really two sides of the leader. There's this upright heart, or I think the King James Version says integrity of heart. And then there's these skillful hands. There's this competency. And so I spend a lot of time on a day-to-day basis for, in, in terms of my daily work training leaders on the competency side of the equation. We do focus on character and integrity because of the place that I work, but we rarely get a chance to really delve into what is that character that David had? What is that integrity of heart that, that, he, that he references here? Because he's taken a shepherd boy and he's put him on the throne to lead, And then he says about that shepherd boy that it was with integrity of heart that he shepherded them. And so what we're going to be focusing on over the course of the next few weeks is we're going to be focusing on that upright heart. We're going to be focusing on that integrity of heart. We're going to attempt to show that living a life of obedience to God puts true leadership on display. That God, who so graciously called us out of darkness into light, has called us for a purpose. And that purpose is to bring honor to his name. I mean, so oftentimes I think we find ourselves in positions where we're asking, well, what is it that God has called me to do? He has called me to bring honor and glory to his name. And everything that I say and do, that that is, my, that, is that is the whole duty of man, is to bring honor and glory to God's name. So our purpose here, this, our goal this evening, and will be in the subsequent weeks, will really be to focus on, what is that integrity of heart? And we're going to talk quite a bit about that this evening, um, so that we hopefully will see that He is the source and substance of this high calling, this divine call that has gone out to us, and that it is his glory, that is His majesty, that it is our obedience to His commands, that is first and foremost what we need to be focused on. Um, so often, again, each of us has probably been there I know I have, where I'm focusing on all of these other things, and I'm looking for all of these signs when it's all right here. It is that I would be obedient to what he has called me to do. And that is to, and if I will do those things, I will share with you that if we do that, you will be leading. You won't need a leadership book. If you do this, you will be leading. Now, we're not talking about the world standard of leadership. Because we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about a type of character that the world spurns. We're not talking about the kind of character that's going to win you awards in the world. This is not what's going to get you on the cover of a magazine. This is what God has called us to. So, let's get started. Let me say two things real quick. One is about that packet. Someone asked me earlier, if you need one, there's a couple of here still on the seats. Those of you who were afraid to come up to the front. <laughs> you know who you are. And, and yes, And right, ser- Seriously, don't come up to the front. <laughs> so... They don't want to be messed with, that's right. So there are some others up here if anyone needs one. Um, so, but what I was going to say is that, that pa- someone asked me if that packet, Rita said, is that for the four weeks or is that for tonight? And I said, that's for tonight, isn't that terrible? Oh, I know, you're like, whoa, dude, how much time? We- <laughs> I signed up for the 6.30 to 7.30 class. <laughs> I didn't sign up, sign- you're right here, I didn't sign up for the all-nighter. You're going to talk about more than Sunday morning, what are you doing? So... Let me tell you what that's about, um, outside of the fact that that's true to, my, to me, that's true to my style and to who I am in terms of giving a lot of information. We're not going to cover everything that's in there. Um, we are going to cover a good amount of it, um, but there's a lot that's there that we won't cover in terms of we won't go into detail. There's a lot of scriptural references in there, scriptural references, that we're not going to read through each of those scripture references, but I've given it to you in a way that I hope you can use it to study on your own. So there will be a point at which we're going to walk through some of the Beatitudes. I'll probably only talk about a couple of them with some depth and the rest will kind of move through pretty quickly. But all of the notes are there. All of the cross references are there. And my hope is that you'll take this home and that you'll use it during the week and that you'll prayerfully consider what's there. Prayerfully consider it as you go through the scriptures. And that you'll then come back ready to to talk somewhat about it. Um, I would I would invite you to um, invite you to email any questions that you have, anything that I've said that was confusing, any anything that you read that you thought you were so far off. Because my gosh, I absolutely could be so far off, right? So I would love to hear from you, and so I will share my email address at the end. But at the end of the day, we're not going to go through all of it, so you won't have to. Don't. Hopefully, I didn't scare you off um, by getting into that. All right. So let's start. I need a can I pull this chair up here. I need a place to sit this so that I have a little more room. Yep. Thank you. And I'll try not to. I'll try not to trip over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it'll be part of the show. All right. <laughs> All right. So let's talk a little bit about what we're going to cover then. I've laid out four objectives, but I'd like you to just put them together as a set of questions. And we're going to try to answer those questions tonight. Although we're not going to answer them individually, I think that the answers themselves will emerge as we go through the material. So one of the things we want to look at is, as the verses we're looking at tonight, is what is the context in which these verses are contained? So what is the context? What's what's there for, for us to learn from? We're going to talk a little bit about the Beatitudes. We'll probably spend a good amount of time there. So with those that we're able to cover... You know, what is the mean of those, those beatitudes, and what is it telling me that I, what is it saying about me? What is it saying about you? Um, what does Christ mean when he refers to us as the salt of the earth? When he says that you are the light of the world, what exactly is he talking about? And again, how does that apply to me? And then, of course, at the end of the day, it's supposed to be a class on leadership. So what in the world does any of this have to do with leadership? Because I thought we were going to be talking about communication and execution and all of that stuff, right? Wrong. You didn't think that. (laughs) I hope not, (laughs) because you're going to be disappointed. (laughs) So... uh, but at any rate, um, so that's what we want to do. So when you hear the term context, though, what comes to mind when you think about the when someone talks about the context for scripture? What are we what are we referring to? In its whole, In its whole okay. It's all right. Someone else. The broader meaning of the passages around it. The broader meaning of the passages around it. Great. Anyone else? Yes, sir. What it meant to the people at the time. What it meant to the people at the time. Yeah, when they were listening to this, what would they have understood this to mean? someone else what goes on before and what goes on after absolutely absolutely so the context itself is really critically important you know so as we we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the context from two perspectives one is i think it's important for us to understand what was the picture that matthew was trying to paint in the gospel of matthew i mean believe it or not I know you believe it. All of that stuff goes together to paint a single solitary picture. So what was his perspective? What is it that he was trying to say? What was he trying to cover? And, and then based on that, what is that potentially telling us about the Beatitudes themselves or the Sermon on the Mount? And then again, as we look at those, what was happening before and what was happening, excuse me, what was happening afterwards? So... You know, having read through the, I'm sure having read through the Gospels, you've probably noted a few things um, that sort of stood out if you've gone through all four of them with respect to what's, what's recorded in each of those things. Um, first of all, I would say they're not a complete narrative of the entire life of Christ. You know, I mean, if you look at John 21, 21. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So we know, even in the Gospel of John, he's saying, I didn't write everything that he did. Okay, There's so much more that could have been written, so we know it's not a complete narrative. Um, We also know that there are some events that appear in one book, but doesn't appear in the other books. So you may find, I don't know if you've ever found yourself trying to find something, and you guys probably don't, but I know when I'm looking for something, oftentimes I've gone page by page through Matthew only to learn that it was in John. I have, you know, I just expected it was, in, it was in all of them, right? That's what you want, someone teaching you who can't know the difference between Matthew and John. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can relate. So, uh, but at any rate, yeah, so, there, you know, so there's times where you find things that are in one that are in the other. And then the third point, is that there are events that are reported in multiple books that don't always report the same information. Um, it, you, the, you know that they're talking about the same set of events, but there seems to be some difference in the reporting of the story itself. So there seems to be some differences. Um, number four, that's on your page, you can put a big X through. That was actually just me writing some notes down and I forgot to delete it. That word facts was made messing me up. It reads as if somehow some, there's some factual inaccuracies actually number three is supposed to be number four so but at any rate you see that and you can see that when you're going through the gospel so if you think about it, if we were going to write a <clears throat> we're going to write a, a biography three of us were going to write a biography about darren <laughs> ah. <laughs> i know where the bodies are buried <laughs> that's the first that i'm going to do so we're going to write a biography about Baron, darren and his and his walk with god you know, you may have one person who's going to write it from the perspective of Darren as a friend. Someone who's going to write it from the perspective of Darren as a pastor. Someone else who's going to write it the perspective of Darren as a father. Now, there's going to be some events that are going to overlap in all three of those biographies, but there's probably going to be some things that are specific to each of those that don't appear in any of the other narratives. We see the same thing in the, in the narratives about the life of Christ. And so each of them was writing for a specific purpose, but with some specific picture that they had in mind as, as the Holy Spirit was inspiring them. Give you a couple of examples the book of Mark. And there's certainly debate about all of this, and I'm willing to debate it, just not right now. But just, but just want to share this with you, because I think when we get to Matthew, it will help put the Beatitudes into some context. So in, in Mark, one of the things we see in Mark is this, we really see Jesus as the servant of Jehovah. I mean, we really see him in this role of a servant as you're going through. Not that you don't see him as a servant in other books. I'm not at all saying that. I'm saying that you see this sort of consistent theme in the book of Mark. As a matter of fact, I think we see the fulfillment of Zechariah 3, 8 here now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men. They're men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. You know, if you read the verses around that, you'll you'll see several verses regarding um, referencing Jesus as the branch. But you see him as this servant as you go through it. Some of the things that you see different in Mark that you don't see in the others. is I don't know if you've noticed it, but there's no genealogy in the book of Mark. There is no genealogy. There's nothing about the birth. Now, what could be more important than the actual miraculous birth of Jesus Christ? Yet he chose not to include it, chose, right, inspired by the Holy Spirit, not to include that in his narrative. There's nothing about his early life. No mention of any of that. You get a a little bit about John the Baptist, you get the baptism, and then you get a brief little bit, a couple of verses about the temptation, and then we're right into his public ministry. And that's what that, that particular book tends to focus on as you go through it. Even if you look at the themes of the parables, of all the parables, we know from Mark 4:33 and 34, many such parables. He spoke, the word, um, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So we know that Mark knows that there was a lot of parables, but he only reports four. And it's interesting, just if you go through them, I'm not going to talk about them tonight, but even if you go through them, you'll see a pretty consistent theme In those parables, you're not going to see any parable about anyone sitting on a throne with the sheep on one side and the goats on the other side, because he he wasn't focused on him as the king. He's focused on him as a servant. Does that make sense? Makes sense. Okay, I need you to help me out. Does that make sense? All right, cool. That's the part part that that I'll know you got it. All right. I said what? (laughs) Preach. Okay. (laughs) There's there's always one. (laughs) You're like a 1.5, though. <laughs> Told you not to mess with me. All right, so Luke. <laughs> Let's talk about Luke. I think when we look at Luke, we see this picture of Jesus as the Son of Man. You get this real portrait of the humanity of Christ as we go through it. Um, so you see him as connected with the sons of men, yet there's a real effort to, to distinguish him or differentiate him from the sons of men, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit... Really put a lot of effort into ensuring that we understood that great is the that as he said that we, um, great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, or literally manifested in flesh, for God has done what the law, <clears throat> what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Nevertheless, if you read through the Scripture, you know that that was only an outward, it was only outwardly that He was like us, right? Because inwardly, there wasn't that same corruption. Inwardly, there wasn't that draw to sin. So the Holy Spirit, but when you go through that book of Luke, you do, you really get to see this humanity. And you even, even in the way the book itself is written, um, you get to see that. Um, if you look at the, the, um, the introduction, you know, I've got that there for you. If you look at the introduction, look at the difference between the introductions. You know, in Matthew, you've got the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Mark, we have the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. John, we have in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Luke says, Luke has this dedication to Theophilus, I believe is how I say his name. That's how I say it when I'm home privately. Theophilus, um, (laughs) I just call him T. No, I'm kidding. So in as much as Many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things, and I'm going to read it to you, but you see, even there, you have this sort of, human, this, sort of this humanity in the introduction of the book of Luke. Um, Luke is the only place where we see Mary visiting Elizabeth. It's the only place where we have the prophecy of Zechariah, this human emotion that you see as you read through what they were saying. Um, you see him going to Bethlehem. You see more detail about his birth than in any other gospel. And you also is the only book that where we record a visit by the shepherds. And what did the shepherds say? For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Not who is where is the king of the Jews, but where is the savior? This title that goes way beyond just the Jewish people, but extends to the Gentiles also. So we see this as we walk through as we go through that particular book. The other thing I would point out is that um, number 10 is that when you look at the genealogy which is which is included in Luke uh, the third chapter of Luke the genealogy is traced all the way back to Adam. So again, you get to see that we're we're going to be seeing this humanity this human side of Jesus Christ. John, John we really see him as the son of God. And John, you see this consistent theme, this focus on the deity of Christ. I mean, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. We didn't talk about Adam. We didn't talk about Abraham. We talked about a time. I don't think you can even call it time, right? We're talking about that time that you and I can't even conceive of, that there was a time when the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit existed, as one self sufficient in need of nothing didn 't decide to create because they were lonely all by themselves in complete harmony with one another that 's where he takes us to because he wants us to know that, that Jesus Christ is equal this jesus that i 'm writing about is equal with God himself He is God is was the focus of his was of his um, uh, his book. Note even the differences. In the the testimony of John the Baptist, you'll have John declaring him the Lamb of God, John declaring him the Son of God. You do have the voice come from heaven, but you hear John the Baptist. He's not talking about repentance. He's not talking about you brood of vipers. But we know he said those things. But when John recorded, he recorded those things that were directly linked to the deity of Christ, those things that focused on Jesus as God. This is the only book where we're told to pray in his name. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Yes. All right. Cool. Cool. Come on, Mary Beth. Help me out. (laughs) Help a brother out. Just yes. Yes, There you go. (laughs) All right. And finally, Matthew. Matthew focuses on Christ as the son of David, the king of the Jews. Again, we're talking about context. So you're going to have this consistent theme. Of Jesus Christ as the King. We see this fulfillment of Jeremiah 23, 30, 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as King and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. If you read the genealogy, it's a royal genealogy, right? I mean, he is focused, you know, he didn't go back to that time that John went to, but he focused on this, and he, and he didn't go back any further than Abraham because he is the king of the Jews, right? So there was no reason to talk about Adam. We only needed to focus on Abraham. This is the only book where we get a visit from the wise men from the east, and what did they say? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? But yet there was no reason to include that in the other books, because in Matthew, we see him as this king. Even if you look at, and I'll encourage you even to take a look at some point at the the parable of the tenants. Um, I I marked it in in Mark, Mark, the 12th chapter. If you'll also compare it to Matthew, the 21st chapter, exact same parable. At the end of the parable in Mark, he says that the people he was talking to, they believed that he was talking about them, and so they sought to kill him. Matthew actually says that he told them that he was talking about them, that the kingdom is going to be taken away from you. Why? Because a servant wouldn't say that, but the king, the king would say, we're going to be taking this away from you and giving it to someone else. It is against that backdrop that we get the Beatitudes. It's against that backdrop of Jesus Christ as the king that we get this, that we get this, um, manifesto so to speak right is that we get this this laying out of the character of the people who are going to be part of this kingdom with him we see him as this king that makes sense oh hey you're getting better at it all right all right so let's look at the sermon let's look at the um uh the sermon on the mount you're going to turn to if you have your bible we're going to go to the fifth chapter of matthew you know that it is covered. The, the it actually runs from the fifth chapter through the seventh chapter. One of the things that you think of just sort of the context of the sermon itself, you know, Jesus in the fourth chapter in the 17th verse says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Someone earlier said we need to pay attention to those verses that come before as well as those verses that are afterwards. So we know that as he's going out into this ministry, into this public ministry, he is actually preaching the same message that John the Baptist was preaching. And that is that we you should repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was John the Baptist's message. It was Peter's message. It was Paul's message. As a matter of fact, the things that we're going to talk about tonight there's no enjoyment of those without repentance. There's no peace without repentance. There'll be no peace in Israel without repentance. I mean, we can vote for whoever you want to, but unless there's repentance, there'll be no peace. Unless our country repents, there'll be no peace. And so, this is the central message. This is foundational to who we are as a as the people of God. That repentance is critical to the enjoyment of who God is. And it all begins there. So we know that, that Jesus is out doing that. I've given you... One of the things I didn't tell you is that you're going to see several boxes where it says additional references for reflection. You're going to see that throughout. Again, those are just multiple cross-references that I'd love for you to take some time and read and, and um, tell, me what you, tell me what you think or tell me that it was too many, whatever you want to do. So let's start, let's start with Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Could I get do me a favor? Could you give me some more water? You, young man, I see that hand. <laughs> Such a volunteer. <laughs> voluntold. <laughs> that's right. Yes, yes. I grew up being voluntold. You know my mother? <laughs> Tony, would you wash the dishes? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think you're asking to be nice. <laughs> but yes, but yes. <laughs> the answer you're looking for is yes, I'll wash the dishes. And that's at my house. That's not at hers, right? <laughs> So, yeah, no, I'm just kidding. So. But uh, at any rate, remember, it's against this backdrop of, of Jesus Christ being presented as this king of the Jews uh, that, we're, that we get the, thank you, Parker, that we get the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, clearly, what he's going to talk about is going to be somewhat foreign to the listeners. Um, they're no different than us. Um, they have a standard of what they expected a leader to do. They had a standard of what they expected a kingdom to look like. And in their case, they had a history of what a kingdom looked like, right? I mean, so had the, they had seen, you know, they certainly knew of all that had happened when, they came into, when Joshua led them into the promised land, right? I mean, they knew of everyone who had been conquered. They understood what it meant, and that's what they were expecting. I would also say for us that as we look at the Beatitudes, we're going to see some things there that are so contrary to what our world believes is important, to what our world values. I mean, I will share with you that we are at war, but our war is not with Syria—at least not yet. Our world's our war is not with Al Qaeda. Our world is with American values. Our world is with this belief system that somehow Americans are the people of God. Maybe you think so, and we're not. Being an American doesn't make you the people. Doesn't make you the people of God. It may be the land of the brave and the home of the proud. I'm sorry, I know I'm messing it up. But the American way is not God's way. And that's what we're at battle with. That's what we're in battle over. Because you and I are bombarded with those things every single day. Someone said to me the other day, he was expounding to me his God-given rights to do whatever it was we were talking about. And all I could say is, what scripture are you talking about? I don't know about any God-given rights. I serve a king, right? right? We, we, I serve a king. So whatever rights I have, I have because he's bestowed them on me and given me this opportunity and the privilege to be able to do whatever it is. But I don't know what God-given right to, and then you fill in the blank. So we're at battle against that. It, 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 is, it permeates all of our thinking because we all are affected by it because it's the world in which we've grown up in. Please understand. I'm glad that I'm here in America. No doubt. Absolutely glad I'm here in America. You see, if it wasn't for all of those slaves who died on that slave ship, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be standing here. So I can tell you with a certainty that the only thing that's important when I look at our world is what it tells me that God is doing. See, I can look at that slave ship and I can say somehow and all of that wrong and all of those people were going to pay for it. God needed them, needed me, needed them to come here so that I could be here so that I could be on a continent where I could hear the gospel preached. And that's all that matters in the rest of all of that history. I'm not going to get upset about any of them all over. I'm over the anger. I was angry as as an an adolescent and as an adult, too. (laughs) For a long time, I was angry. But that's that—that's all that matters. When I look at the events that are happening in our world, what does it tell us that God is doing? Why? Because God is known by his judgments in the earth. So what is that telling me about who God is? Not what is it telling me about what Obama's doing or not doing? What is it telling me about what God is doing? And that's what I want to know. Because I find myself asking, and then I'll get back on message. What if my people prayed? What if my people prayed? What if I spent more minutes praying and less minutes complaining? Wow, I wonder what would happen. I'm not talking about you because I know you don't complain. I'm talking about, I'm talking, (laughs) brother's talking about me. I told you it was for me. (laughs) I'm just glad to be able to say it out loud to someone. (laughs) Yeah, what would happen if I prayed? I mean, what would happen if I did that and seek his face and turn from my wicked ways he 's made a promise that he will heal the land that he'll heal the land okay that was free that was free we'll get back on message all right so okay what were we talking about we're talking about God so this message would have been contrary to what they would have expected there's the bottom line and I think when we think about leading It's contrary to the message that we've been given. It's contrary to the message that we're being bombarded with on a daily basis. But let's talk about this. So he went up into a mountain, right? So we know that he's there on a mountain. And he's got his, um, he's sitting there and it says that, you know, a couple of things that I thought, first of all, important about the mountain is that there's three different times in Matthew where there's three important things that happen on a mountain. Um, In Matthew, the 24th chapter, you get this extended prophecy about his kingdom. Remember Jesus Christ as king. You get this extended narrative about his kingdom and the judgment leading up to the end of the age. Matthew 17, 1 through 8, you get this transfiguration that's happening on a mountain. So you get this transfiguration, you get this appearance of Elijah and Moses. And this is right after actually says six days after he talks about the son of man coming into his kingdom. And then six days later, he's there with a few of his disciples on a mountain. And this transfiguration happens. And then the third event we have that happens on a mountain is the Sermon on the Mount itself. Again, he's going up into this high place and he's there on this mountain. And this is what he's laying out for the people who are listening. It reminded me of Proverbs 8, 1 and 2. Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand where? On the top of the high hill. On that day, wisdom was on a mountain. Wisdom was at the top of a hill talking to the people. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's move on. There are are scholars, if you do some review, that certainly um, talk about the... Um, comparison between Mount Sinai and Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount um, in terms of those two experiences. A couple of things you see really, really different that I thought were significant. Number one, when you look at Sinai, God spoke spoke what through Moses? In thunder and lightning. Today we have the king, I'm going to say speaking in a still, small voice. I don't know how loud he was. But there's no thunder and lightning accompanying it. In the day of Moses, the people were told to stay back, right? Jesus has said, come up. Yeah, a whole new advent has been initiated with the presence of this king. Amen. All right. It says he sat down. Um, it's still in verse 1. Um, that certainly would have been familiar to the listeners. Um, the, the, you know, in the temple, they oftentimes would read the— when they would read the Scriptures, they would read them standing. But any time they were going to expound on the Scriptures, it was not uncommon to sit down and to speak to the people. And this is what we have is this picture of Jesus sitting there on the mountain with the disciples around him, which it says the disciples came to him. But you know, if you'll check the 7th chapter of Matthew, the 28th and 29th verse, you know that when he finished speaking, it said the crowds were astonished at his teaching— so So we know it wasn't just his disciples, but that he also had a crowd. So we probably have him there. We've got a circle of his disciples, and then we've got the crowd that's also there with him. Um, What's also, I think, important in that verse of 28 and 29 is it says that, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes, right? So we have him in this position of authority. And Matthew thought it was important to point out that the king was teaching with authority. All right, so let's talk about the Beatitudes. We're going to begin in verse 3. Um, just sort of real quick, we're not going, as I said earlier, we're not going to cover them all. Um, my goal is to finish on time, um, and my goal will always be to start on time, so just just so you know. Um, my goal will be to start on time and to try to finish on time, and um, so I will try to delve into a couple of them in detail. I will at least two into detail, maybe three, and then the others I'll kind of move through a little quickly because I want to make sure we get to the salt of the earth and the light of the world, um, which is going to be important um, in terms of where we're going from here, um, but there are, as I said earlier, all of those notes, all the things that I would say if we were going to spend hours and hours up here going through it, um, they're there for you to be able to read on your own. So um, this, the the Beatitudes themselves come from a Latin word that I'm not going to try to pronounce. Is there someone who La- speaks Latin who can tell us how to say that word? I even gave you the the pronunciation. Yeah, okay. I, you know, I can tell. You just don't want to show off. See, look at there. See? <laughs> I knew you knew. <laughs> That's good. That's real good. So meaning happiness or blessedness It's a it's an Old Testament literary style. If you think of Psalm one, you know, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, Um, standing in this uh, way of sinners, sitting in the seat of the scornful. Um, so, you see that same literary style in the, um, in the Old Testament. Um, it is important to note, though, that the, even though the word means um, happiness or blessedness, from a definition standpoint, it certainly means more than just what we would think of as happiness. Um, we certainly have periods of, of emotional happiness. Um, but if you, if you look here, Numbers 6, 22 through 27, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus shall you bless the people of Israel. Keep in mind the word bless. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So we're not talking about just some emotional happiness when we're talking about being blessed, but we actually are talking about this intimate fellowship and communion between God and his people, right? Didn't Jesus say, and this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God? and Jesus Christ who you sent. So there's this. it carries with it this idea that there's this intimate relationship between the creator of the earth and his people, and that's what brings the blessedness. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. So each of the blessings that we go through are all going to be followed up with a promise. Um, I would say that if you remember from um, we, earlier, I talked about verse four, um, chapter 417, repent for the kingdom of, he- of heaven is at hand. I think that when we look at the Beatitudes, we are getting a description of what the repentant lifestyle actually looks like. So, again, someone was talking about he talking about context earlier. This is what it looks like when you are living in a, in a state of being rep- of repentant from sin. This is what he's outlining for us. It's also the beatitudes are also consistent with with Matthew's theme very consistent with his theme right because it is the uh, this is Some would say it's the only place where the sermon is contained. There is debate about whether or not Luke, the sixth chapter, 17 through 49, is also the same message. Luke does talk about him being in a plane, on the plane, and as opposed to being that plane, P L A I N. For those of you who are keeping up, as opposed to being up in a mountain. Um, I have heard both arguments, and neither one of them matter to me. At the end of the day, (laughs) at the end of the day, what I do know is that we have this king outlining the blessings that will come to his subjects. He is outlining the behavior of his subjects, and that's what we have here. So the last thing I want to say about that is that it is not for us. They're not there for us to necessarily pick and choose, you know. So Mary Beth's going, "Well, I want to be meek. I'm, that's the one I'm going to be, right?" And so and Darren's like, "I want to be persecuted for righteousness' sake." But that me, that meek stuff, that's just that's not me, right? So he said, so "What's that?" It's happening right now. You just think it's because of righteousness. I just. I do play hard. I'm sorry. You know, I love you though. You know, I love you. You know, I love you. No, in all seriousness. So it is, it is. He's painting a portrait, a picture of what his people are supposed to look like. And that's what, so therefore, when we get to the salt of the earth and the light of the world, we can look back at what you would look like when you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Amen. Okay. So let's start with the poor in spirit. Matthew five, three, um, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, I don't think it's an accident, or I, clearly I don't think it's an accident, that this is the first beatitude. Um, that Remember, we've been talking, we've, what we said is that he's preached this message of repentance. And part of the road through repentance is this sense of being poor in spirit, right? is this, this sense of this need to repent, this need to turn to God. So blessed are the poor in spirit, this sort of deep conviction or this convincing of my sinfulness is kind of where is actually where we're beginning with this. R.C. Sproul wrote, poverty of spirit is an emptying of our self-reliance and any claim we falsely believe to have on God. It is a recognition that we are utterly dependent on divine grace and undeserving of his favor. It is repentance for setting ourselves up as gods and then resting in the Lord's promise of salvation. That's the description. This is what's sort of contained in that sense of the poor in spirit. Now again, I know it. sad, I talked earlier about the kind of the American way, but it does, it strikes that sort of Western sensibilities, this idea of being poor in spirit, because we live in a country that's self-sufficient, self-reliant, and everybody pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. I don't even know what bootstraps are, but everybody come everybody, from the city. So, you know. <laughs> 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 Straps are what your mom whoops your butt with, right? <laughs> So I certainly don't want it on my boot. <laughs> I don't want to have it around me at all. So, so but we, we do. We've got this sort of self-reliant, self-sufficient. That's what we. You know, I'm telling the truth. <laughs> so self-sufficient um, country that we live in. So this sort of this idea of being poor in spirit doesn't fit with our culture. But this is the first thing that Jesus says of all the things he could have said at that moment with his disciples, with that crowd, he chose to say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what do we mean by the, you know, what do we mean by the kingdom of heaven? You know, this is one of the two places in the Beatitudes where you see the kingdom of heaven. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the kingdom of heaven. That would take far too long. But it is two things. There's something I think is interesting there. Number one is that the first Beatitude and the last Beatitude both say, the same thing, and that is theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The verse following that last beatitude, I think, is is giving us an example of the kind of persecution or the kind of suffering. But both of those beatitudes tell us that. All of the other beatitudes speak future tense. They shall have this. They shall be this. They shall be called the sons of God. But in this case, it was as if he was giving these disciples, he was giving his listeners this assurance of the kingdom that, this, that when you are poor in spirit, when you come to recognize that sinfulness, yours is the kingdom of heaven. You possess the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Amen. Amen. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Last thing I want to say about that. I knew there was one other thing. Two audiences, one message. So we've got the disciples who have turned and come to Christ. And then we have a crowd of people, many of whom have not turned from their sin, right? Many of whom will probably be the same ones who are crucifying him. Many of whom will someday turn from sin. But we've got two crowds, not unlike what we have on Sunday morning. You've got two crowds. You have, a, you have some within the crowd who know God. You have some in the crowd who don't yet know God. Both need to hear the same message. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5 and 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall inherit the earth. Mourning speaks of this sorrow for sin. Okay, again, if you think about it progressively, and if we could spend, you could spend weeks going through the Beatitudes, maybe Darren will preach on the Beatitudes for us, but you could spend weeks going through the Beatitudes. But think of it this way, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then we have the poor in spirit, this sort of recognition right? This recognition of my sinfulness. And now I have this mourning or this sorrow over sin as I've come to understand, as I've come to understand God in his righteousness and his holiness and his forgiveness and his love is going to give me relief from that mourning. So again, if you just look at them progressively, you see why these would be in the order that they're in. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. So let me learn one of my favorite songs in the valley. Let me learn that my losses are my gain. To be broken is to heal, that the valleys where your power is revealed. So let's look at four places where you see mourning come up. where you see mourning come up in our lives. First of all, mourning due to conviction of sin before being saved from the penalty of sin, which is what I just talked about, right? So this idea of mourning as I've come to recognize sinfulness and I've come to recognize God in his holiness and I know that I need something and I also come, He, he is so gracious then to also open my eyes to his love that he has for me and to draw me to him. and and to draw me to him so that I can be forgiven of sin. So there's this mourning that certainly happens prior to coming to know Christ. That would be one of the audiences. There's another audience that mourns due to conviction of sin while being saved from the pleasure of sin, which is the state we're in, right? So we've been saved, if you have been, saved from the penalty of sin, but now we have to be saved from the pleasure of sin. Right. So there's still the process. There's this sanctification process that is still going on in our lives. So there are times Paul wrote after talking about the the battle he has with sin. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of his death? So we find he finds himself there as we do with, with the next verse in Hebrews is that there are those times where that sin that so easily besets us, that I so easily get tripped up on, that I find myself at times still mourning that particular sin It's during those times that I know I can go to God. Who has already paid the penalty for the sin, right? Christ has already paid the penalty so I can continue to run back. My mom and I were talking as we were driving home today from the service of how important that is, how important that is to remember because I'm going to continue to fall. I'm going to continue to sin. It's going to continue to come out of me. But I have a God who loves me today, just like he loved me when he called me out of darkness. And I can continue to turn to him and ask his forgiveness. But yet there are times in our lives where there is mourning as a result of sin. There's mourning. Amen. Amen. All right. So there is mourning due to sin we see in the world, sin we see in others. And I'm not going to read all of these, but listen to this first one, Mark three, one through five. And he entered the synagogue and a man was there with the withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger and grieved at the hardness of their heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. and His hand was restored. But we see this this grieving over the sin that we see in the world. You see, the more I come to understand what God is doing in the earth, the more I can grieve over the sin that I see in the earth. You know, something happened. I won't get into the whole details, but something happened to me a few weeks ago. And God reminded me, why are you so upset that they're acting in accordance with their nature? And guess what? It is for your sanctification. (laughs) Hard as it is. It is for your sanctification. That's why this is happening. Right. Amen? Amen. Amen. And then we have mourning due to God's providential dealings with us as well as others. And this time others, I mean others, other believers. Psalm six, and I'm going to stay with Psalm six for just a second, um, verses six and seven. I am weary in my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows because of all my foes. These foes are up on David at this point, but it's as a result of some of the things that David has been doing. And you'll see that you'll really see his hand, how heavy God's hand is up on him. If you read the the entire psalm, you will recall from the series on Job. That there are times when providentially there are things that are happening to you, to us, they don't have anything to do with any particular sin. Right. It, it is when he says you will suffer for righteousness' sake, we have an example of someone that God Himself called a righteous man, right. and he suffered right? And he said, we know why he suffered. So there are clearly times when providentially there are things that are happening that have nothing to do with any particular sin that's been committed. Now that doesn't mean someone hasn't sinned. We would all agree that Job sins, right? Or did sin anyway. I hope you would agree with that. So we, we agree that we all sin, but I'm saying that that wasn't the reason why it was happening to him. So we know that that's clear. We also know that it was for his sanctification, That it was for his growth. It was for that all of that was happening for him. I would also suggest, actually, I wouldn't suggest, I would also say that David teaches us, and we'll see this in David's life over the next two weeks, that sometimes our enemy or the enemies are up on us because of sin. That there are, in fact, times when the mourning that he's feeling is because of his sin. But guess what? It is still for his sanctification. It is still for his sanctification. And we know that all those we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So even in that, it is for his sanctification. Nevertheless, if you read that Psalm and as we look at David's life, you will see clear examples of God dealing with him because he sinned. That's why this is happening and makes it clear to him. There's a couple of points I want to make about this. One, David's word, if you read it, as I said, his words will indicate that God's hand is heavy upon him. If you go through that that psalm, it is heavy upon him. Secondly, the place where we find David mourning is the same place we've seen him sin. What did he say here? He said, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. And we know, not that I'm saying this was the sin, I'm only saying that the place where he's finding himself moaning, the place where he's finding himself mourning is the very place where he he committed sin. Oh, who teaches like the Lord, right? Who teaches like God? Amen, amen, amen. And finally, if you read the end of that, you will see that God hears his prayer. I'm gonna turn there briefly. Psalm, the sixth Psalm toward the end here. He says in verse eight, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Amen. The Lord's hand was heavy upon him. He was mourning because of his sin. But at some point he could get up and say, but the Lord has heard me. So y'all can back off. (laughs) They got pretty close to the castle, I'm guessing. (laughs) But now somebody's probably telling them, David's up, (laughs) y'all. He's done mourning because God has heard his prayer. So it is with us also. So even though there are certainly times where the mourning is because of sin, because of sin that's been committed, don't ever forget that God will hear your prayer. And that desire to not go before him is a desire that's within you. It has nothing to do with him. He's there and he's there for you. You just have to turn back to him. And if you don't feel like turning back to him, turn to him and tell him you don't feel like turning back to him. Say, Lord, stop me from feeling. Get me to feel like I need to feel so I can feel like turning to you. Wherever you are in that equation, right, Sandy? Amen. Just tell him whatever it takes, but you've got to go back to him because he's the only one who can make it right for you. He's the only one who can straighten it out. Amen. I am running out of time. Surprise, surprise, right? Okay. Did somebody say amen after that? (laughs) Mothers, man. (laughs) Supposed to be your biggest fan. (laughs) She knows me well. She knows me well. So the thing we have here, there's a chart right after that, and and I'm not going to go through all of that, but for each of those times when i talked about mourning, I've also tried to lay out for you that there is comfort. That God is there to comfort in each of those situations. I tried to also provide some scriptures for you. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And finally, in Revelation, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen. 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 I have very little time left. I'm going to move away from the Beatitudes. Please read this. I want, to, I want you to get to the light of the world. Mine is page 20, excuse me, not, not the light of the world, excuse me, the salt of the earth. Mine is page 19, yours may not be, because I've got some extra notes. And then we will end. So he makes this transition. He makes this transition um, beginning in the 13th verse. He makes this transition from the Beatitudes, this transition from talking about the, the, the character of the people who are going to be in his kingdom, to, talking to, to to really saying that a disciple who doesn't live like a disciple is, about worth, is worth about as much as tasteless salt or invisible light. That if he doesn't live that way, then he's of no value. He's of no value to him. So the salt of the earth, you know, scholar, I'm um, verse 13. Let me read that. Read the verse. If you will bear with me for two minutes, I will wrap this up. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall it be? How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Um, I've given you a few ways in which salt is a, has been um, in terms of scholars have emphasized how it's used um, certainly as a preservative um, An agent regularly added to manure. Again, I'm from the city, so I don't know anything about that. So, sorry. (laughs) But a flavoring agent, certainly as a flavoring agent. And I've heard people talk about certainly number one and number three. Um, I think in in this case, if we look at it in the context, I think he's talking about salt as a flavoring agent. He tends to be focusing on it um, as a flavoring agent and having a fundamental impact on anything in which it comes into contact. There is no better definition of leadership than having impact, having a fundamental impact on everyone and everything with whom you come into contact with. That would be leadership, because leadership is about impact. Leadership is about influence. And so if you are the, if you are the, the salt of the earth, and he's comparing this to salt, salt fundamentally changes anything it comes into contact with. If you're a salt fiend like me, everything just tastes like salt. But if you use it the way you're supposed to, you you too? We're in the same support group. You look, uh, you know, I'm sorry. It's supposed to be anonymous. I apologize. (laughs) My fault, brother. (laughs) They don't know what to pray for. (laughs) So, yeah, we're going to be the salt of the earth. If we're going to be the salt of the earth, we're going to fundamentally change the world. We're going to fundamentally change any situation in which we enter. There is no better description of leadership. And finally, you are the light of the world, Matthew 5, 14 and 16. Jewish tradition considered the Israel as the light of the world. If you look at a couple of verses there I gave you in, in Isaiah, he talks about a city on a hill. Now, this could have been Jerusalem or it could have been any elevated city, but at the end of the day, if you think of yourself out there in all that darkness, there is a city on the hill and that city has a light and that light is what i'm walking towards that is what's guiding me that is what directs me he has said that you are the light of the world is there any better definition of leadership than you are the light of the world he then talks about taking a lamp and putting that no one would take a lamp and put it under a basket why because first of all those little lamps didn't put out that much light to begin with so certainly you wouldn't want to cover that light You would want to have that light out where it can give light to the home. So much so also with us. We are the light of the world and light dispels darkness. Salt of the earth, light of the world. Two more things and then I'm done. Commands, right? They're not commands. They're statements of fact. He didn't say you will be the light of the world. He didn't say I command you to be the salt of the earth. He said you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. See, while we're waiting on our jobs for someone to proclaim us a leader, Jesus has already said, if you're in my kingdom, you are leading because you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And lastly, both salt and light permeate and transform food and darkness. We must learn from these two figures that there must be something marked distinct, and peculiar about our character if we are true Christians. Salt and light evidently imply particular, particularity both of heart and life, of faith and practice, J.C. Ryle. It's a high, high calling. It's a high calling, but he has laid out for us in, that, in those Beatitudes, he's laid out for us exactly what we should look like. Now what we need to do is prayerfully seek him to help us be what he has said we are. Where can I be more light, Lord? I want to be a light in the world. Be meek. Suffer for righteousness. That You want to be a light? I've, I've told you exactly what the light is. This is how you become the light. You already are the light of the world. Why? Because my spirit dwells in you. Yeah. Now we seek him to help make us these things. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's close in prayer. Again, our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you with such great thanksgiving. You are an almighty God. We are in and of ourselves undeserving to be in your presence. Yet in your infinite wisdom, you chose to send your son to this earth to live a life of purity and complete obedience to you, to take that purity to the cross and to die on our behalf. And then, Father, You called us out of darkness in your own time. You sent your spirit to awaken us to our need for you. And then you drew us to yourself. And for this, we're thankful. Thank you for this time that we've had together. We just pray that, Father, that these would be more than just words on a page. We pray that that we would be alive to them. And that they would fundamentally transform us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.